0: Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 15th of January 2023, 9.30 service, Katie Lofman speaking in the series, Outsiders Come to God, the Canaanite Woman. Well Stephen was talking just now in the notices about the poor course, no not sorry, Was it Stephen or Tim? Anyway, we saw the notice about the the Paul course. I wonder how many people here have been coming on that course. Oh, that's great, quite a few people. Well, uh, one thing that uh, we've been finding out, I mean, there's a lot to take in in the course, and it's been really interesting, and I'm looking forward to next week. But one massive theme that we're seeing emerging from Paul's writings is his emphasis on the outsider. In Christianity, the outsider welcomed into God's kingdom. So people that previously saw themselves as excluded from God's people are now welcomed with open arms, with no distinctions. One of the defining features of Christianity is its inclusiveness. God's people are not a pure and undiluted race, although some have tried to see them like that. The Jews had a lot of things that they held dear that made them distinct from the nations around them. They had the law, which was a bit more compassionate than the legal system of the surrounding nations. And they had their cultural laws, which marked them out as different. And that's how they and those around them could tell who was one of God's people and who was not. But it was never meant to be exclusive. From very early in the Old Testament, there are examples of Gentiles coming to faith and being included in God's people. And some of those Gentiles turned out to be key people in Israel's history. We even see some of them in Jesus' family tree. And Stephen's going to be talking about those people next next month. But uh, I just wanted to mention one of them, and that's Rahab, who lived in Jericho. Jericho was a pagan city, Uh, a Canaanite city inside the land which God had promised to the Israelites. So it had to be conquered for the Israelites to enter the promised land. Rahab was already an outsider in her own home city because the Bible says she was a sex worker, so not a member of polite society. She also symbolised Jericho's unfaithfulness to God because by their, because they worshipped the goddess Asherah, so they were not faithful to the true God. And the Old Testament often makes this connection. Worship of other gods means being unfaithful to the one true God, like a man going to a prostitute instead of staying faithful to his own true wife. So Rahab was an unfaithful person, outside her own society and definitely outside God's chosen people. But she had seen what God was doing, leading his people out of slavery and taking them into a land of their own, and she was inspired. When she met Joshua's spies, she showed her faith in their God by asking for their protection. She knew that the spies were in danger and she helped them to hide and then to escape, And in return for that act of faith, Joshua arranged for her and her family to be saved from Jericho's destruction and brought into God's people. She ultimately became an ancestor of King David and therefore, of course, of Jesus. She was an outsider who was included in God's people and who played an important role in their family and in their history. Interestingly, Joshua's name means God is salvation. So he was living up to his name by saving her and her family. There's someone in the New Testament with the same name, although his is written in Greek, so it's pronounced Jesus. And he is the ultimate salvation from God. His name doesn't mean salvation for God's special people or God is salvation for those who tick certain boxes, No, it just means an unqualified God is salvation. And Jesus shows us that it's for anyone and everyone. Even in the Old Testament, we see Isaiah and the other prophets talking about salvation for the whole world, not just for God's chosen people. And that's because the salvation comes from God. It doesn't come from anything about us. But by the New Testament, it seems that some people have forgotten that. We see people like the Pharisees taking a hard line on who was included in God's people and and who wasn't. And the reason they were included was because of something special about being Jewish or about what they did. And they put obstacles like that in the way of people coming to God. Those obstacles were extensions of the law to do with giving money to the temple or avoiding people who they described as unclean, following pernickety food regulations, things like that. They prided themselves on keeping these traditions and they were arrogant about their status as one of God's people. I'm all right, Jack. Bad luck on everyone else who's not as good as me. What has started out as showing people a good way for God's people to live had become twisted and turned into a set of hurdles that people had to jump if they wanted to be one of God's people. I wonder how much we do that, put conditions on people coming to God or coming to church. When my twins were babies, you had to keep your children quiet during the service. And because mine wouldn't stay quiet and still, then, and they hated the crash. I actually couldn't come to church for about six months. I'm just so pleased that we've got rid of that obstacle now with our shush-free services. But have we put up other obstacles without realising? Do we do everything we can to make people feel welcome? To make everyone feel welcome? How long might someone stand alone in the lounge after the service feeling like an outsider before one of us draws them into conversation? A few minutes, half an hour, week after week? There are lots of people here who don't know many at church and so it's really important that we keep our eyes open and make sure that they don't feel like outsiders. Because when we draw people in, we're drawing them into God's love. Another way that we can sometimes keep people on the outside is by not really opening up to them and sharing what's on our heart. In church, there should be no such thing as oversharing, as we try to go beyond the superficial and really care for each other, to give love and to receive love. And this is something that I've been trying to put into practice recently about my emotional reaction to David's illness, my husband's illness, I've been trying to be open about how that's, how that's going. So I'm happy to chat if people want to. I'll try not to overshare. <laughs> <laughs> that can be a challenge, and we may have to try especially hard, and it can sometimes feel safer to retreat into cliqueiness and forget about being welcoming, or safer not to open up in honest conversation. Of course, chatting in the lounge is not compulsory, and it doesn't make you a Christian. But it is a celebration of our fellowship, the faith that we have in common, the faith that Matthew has just declared this morning. And wasn't that so moving to see him doing that? But it's a celebration and a chance to support and value each other by letting people in and sharing some of God's love. I used to be in a home group with a woman whose husband rarely came to church and never came to home group. I asked her if he would like to come and why he didn't. And she said that he couldn't actually read. He was a Christian, but he couldn't read. And he found the whole experience stressful and alienating. Because everything here is based on reading, isn't it? Whether it's on the screen or in the Bible. And I found that a real challenge because I didn't have an answer. Because, of course, coming to Jesus shouldn't be dependent on being able to read. And I guess it's the same for people who can't see the screen or can't hear the words. Some people may feel excluded by other special needs that they have. We need to be constantly thinking about how it might be for others and looking out for obstacles that we didn't even know were there. Because that's exactly what Jesus was warning the Pharisees against making it hard for people to come to God just as they are. But Jesus wasn't just talking about accidentally excluding people by failing to appreciate their needs. Jesus strongly criticises people who actively say that certain people can't come to God, they don't deserve to, or they're not welcome for some reason. Throughout his ministry, Jesus worked hard to break down any obstacles to God, He ignored the concept that people could be unclean. He mixed with all and sundry. He demonstrated that there was nothing so bad that it could keep someone from coming to God. Even the traditional enemies of God's people, like the Canaanites, were welcome if they wanted to come to him. The same Canaanites that had been destroyed when they entered the Promised Land. And that's what happened when Jesus travelled out of Israel to teach in Tyre and Sidon. A region just over the border, and that's where our second reading took place. There on foreign soil, a Canaanite woman came to him, a woman from a hated tribe that had been one of, long been one of Israel's enemies. She doesn't have a name in Matthew's account, but like Rahab, she knew Jesus from afar and had come to believe in him. She called him son of David, So to her, he was the anointed one, the Messiah. So she decided to take her daughter to him for healing. The poor girl was suffering from an evil spirit, but her mother knew that Jesus could drive out that evil and rescue her. And that's why they came. And this woman impressed Jesus with her faith. First of all, the disciples tried to turn her away because she's a Canaanite. But horror of horrors, she wouldn't give up. And then Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. It's not right to give children's bread to dogs. Charming. But she didn't even give up then. She talked to Jesus and she persuaded him to heal her daughter. But even the dogs under the table eat the scraps that the children drop. And it was only then because of her perseverance and her faith to persevere that Jesus healed the girl, right there. How often do we feel that our prayers are like that? God doesn't always answer prayers straight away. He wants us to ask, and he wants us to persevere in prayer for the things that we need. Ideally, that persevering will help us to refine our prayers and to evolve them, and they gradually come more into line with God's will. That process of asking and reflecting and then asking again makes us listen to God, trying to hear what he wants for us. (laughs) Through that process we grow and we make ourselves more available to God to do something in our lives that will glorify him, even beyond satisfying our own immediate needs. And that's what happened with the Canaanite woman. Because Jesus didn't say yes straight away, they had this interesting conversation. And it's a conversation which, when we think it through, ends up telling us a lot about Jesus. She wanted him to cast out the evil spirit from her daughter. But the way Matthew's written down the events, we see Jesus showing that he came to cast out all evil, not just individual spirits. He also gives a coded message that he'll bring not only this Gentile Canaanite woman and her daughter into his kingdom, but that the whole world will be gathered into him. So how do we break that code? How do we work that one out? Well, there's a big clue in the place where she lived, Tyre and Sidon, just over the border from Galilee. When God gave the Israelites the Promised Land, the Bible lists seven pagan tribes, or people who were already living in the region, The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites and the Amalekites. Collectively known as the Canaanites. And when Joshua led the Israelites into the land, they had to move those people on in order to take over the land and claim it for God. Tyre and Sidon had originally been part of the land promised to Abraham. But when the Israelites got there, they didn't manage to conquer those two cities so they were never actually incorporated into the kingdom of Israel. They got left out of the promised land. If those places weren't part of Israel, why did Jesus go there to teach? Especially as he says explicitly that he's come primarily for the Jews. But Tyre and Sidon have this strange status of being promised but not claimed. So Jesus sought them out and gave them a second chance to come in. That's why he visited them in Matthew 15. He was giving them an early opportunity to be not left out again, to be restored to their rightful place as part of his kingdom. He was putting right something that Israel messed up right at the beginning. He was restoring his people and gathering in those who were missing, but not through a show of force, but with his love. And the compassion expressed in his healings in those personal encounters. He was searching for lost sheep and gathering them into his flock, into his kingdom. We see how the presence of Jesus changes hearts and changes lives when this woman kneels at Jesus' feet. And Jesus commends her for her life-changing faith. She knows that even the scraps and crumbs that fall from the table are worth having. Even the tiniest bit of Jesus is worth having. And she'll settle for that, for the healing of her daughter. Jesus came to rescue his children, the Jews, from the oppression of evil. And here he's let a scrap of that rescue fall from the table to this Canaanite daughter who's under the table like the family dog. This image of scraps comes up again in the very next passage after saving this girl from her evil spirit Jesus goes back to Galilee and a great crowd bring disabled and ill people to him for healing eventually it's mealtime and Jesus wants to feed them too but all they have is seven loaves and a few fish seven loaves not five seven but Jesus gives thanks and he breaks the bread and everybody has plenty to eat And afterwards, the disciples collect seven baskets of scraps and leftovers. This is not a coincidence. We've just come from Tyre and Sidon where a Canaanite woman from one of the seven outcast tribes was talking about getting scraps from the children's table. To this, a miracle done with seven loaves and seven baskets of scraps gathered in. Those two events are there for a reason that Matthew's put them next to each other. Those seven loaves represent the seven original nations and are now being used by Jesus to bless the crowd, just as God uses his children to bless the world. And the seven baskets of leftovers show that Jesus wants to gather even those seven rejected nations into his kingdom. Those miracles here in the physical world with a demon-possessed girl and seven loaves of bread, give us an inkling of God's much bigger plan, which is to put an end to all evil, whether that's illness, hunger or spiritual oppression, in his ultimate kingdom. Everything will be redeemed and restored, not just Israel, not just a Canaanite girl, not even just the Gentile nations that Israel had displaced, but the whole world and all creation, including, of course, us. And not just Christians, but everybody. And we say in the communion service that we are not worthy to gather up the crumbs under God's table. But just as we see here, his nature is always to have mercy. And he welcomes us in and restores us just as he did when he was on earth. This is the wonderful truth Anyone can come to Jesus and anyone can be saved. No restrictions. We don't have to be good enough to come to him. And it doesn't matter where we come from. We just have to come.